0: My sermon archives. For more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, visit www.pastordavidwentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z, and follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. I pray God speaks to you as you listen. Continuing to work our way through the Book of Ephesians. If you're following in the hymn, uh, the the pew Bibles. It's page 1818, and I realized that it doesn't do me a lot of good to tell you to follow along in a few Bibles if I'm going to be mainly reading from the other one, so I'll be reading from the same translation you're looking at as I am preaching here this morning. We're in Ephesians chapter 2, starting with verse 1, what uh, we just heard read, from David. And we'll start with our key verse found in your bulletin. Where did my bulletin go? Here it is. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians two, eight and nine. I've preached from at least part of this in the past, and I, every time I I see this, it just strikes me is so interesting the way he starts off. The apostle Paul in verse uh, chapter two, he says, "As for you, you were dead." Now that is not something that you normally say to people, you were dead. Weren't you dead? I thought I heard you were dead. Actually, there was a uh, a lady in uh, our church I came from that somehow Social Security got their numbers mixed up and uh, she went to refill a prescription at the uh, pharmacy and uh, the pharmacist looked and said, I'm sorry, I can't I can't fill this for you. You're dead. And it took her the longest time to convince people that she wasn't really dead. She was really alive. But with that, that was just a mix up in the social security numbers. Paul is speaking very seriously. He's saying you were dead. It's something that doesn't make any sense to people who choose to limit themselves to all that they can know through their eyes and their ears and their nose and their taste buds and their skin and their brain. And if you limit yourself to what you can get out of those six bundles of tissue and cells, then you're limiting yourself pretty substantially, and an awful lot of things won't make sense. But Paul says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. When you used to follow the ways of this world, spiritually, you were dead. Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God, the penalty was death. The Bible says the wages of sin, which is defined as following the ways of this world instead of following the ways of God, is death. So spiritually, you're dead. Your body's alive, and your soul, the, the Greek word for soul is suke, which is uh, the root of where we get psychologists. So your soul is anything a psychologist deals with your mind, your emotions, your memories, your imagination, that kind of stuff. And the, the spirit is the part that communicates with God. So when you are following the ways of the world, your your uh, body and your soul were at least temporarily alive. God allows them to be alive in this life so that we can make the choice to follow Him and allow our spirits to be reborn. And Paul is writing to people who have made that choice. They're saints now. He he addresses it this letter in the beginning of the the first chapter to the saints who are in Ephesus, the people who have chosen to follow God, to set themselves aside for God. And that's what the root of the meaning uh, of the word saint is, set aside, set apart for God. So they're saints now, but they didn't used to be. They used to be dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. You see, people who don't choose to submit themselves to God, to surrender their control of their lives to God, people who don't do that tend to think that they're following their own desires. They, they tend to think that they are free and that they're really living now. But the fact is, your choices are always influenced by something. In Romans 6.16, Paul writes, Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. But one way or the other, you're following something. And Paul says here, In verse 2, you used to follow the ways of this world. You used to follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit that even now is working in those who are disobedient. The ones that follow the ways of the world are being influenced, are being worked on by the devil. And so he says in verse 3, all of us also, Lived among them at one time. We all used to be the same way. All of us used to do the same kinds of things. Now, that may not be true here. Because it may be that some of us were raised from infancy in the faith. In knowing the Lord. And not following the ways of the world. But even so, there has to come a time when you make that choice for yourself. When you consciously say, I'm living for God, even if if it's not a crisis experience, even if you kind of gradually grow into it. But in the case of the Ephesians, all of them grew up as pagans and then made a choice to follow Jesus. So all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires And thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. We deserved the most natural thing in the world. The consequence was God's anger. A lot of people don't like to hear about the wrath of God, the anger of God. It doesn't fit the the nice little model of God that we've set up. As uh, gentle Jesus, cheek, meek, and mild, and we focus on his love, which is absolutely right. But he told us not to do it, and we went ahead anyway. When your kids did that, didn't it make you mad? And then their disobedience got us in a terrible mess missing, not following God, messed up our lives. And then we come running for God to bail us out and he bailed us out at a tremendous sacrifice, the cost of his son, Jesus. And then we turn right around and did it again. Wouldn't that make you mad? People disobeyed God. They had the Old Testament law. They knew it. And yet it's, it's impossible to keep without the power of the Holy Spirit who only comes when you give yourself to the Lord. And so God sent Jesus to die and yet people rejected that and kept on doing their own thing, going their own way, messing things up again. Wouldn't that make you mad? We're following the ones who rebelled against God. The devil rebelled against God, tried to actually institute a civil war in heaven and tried to take God's place. And those that choose to follow that, isn't it fitting and right? By nature, the objects of God's wrath. But... Because, I'm looking at verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God. The the New Living Translation says, but God, because he loved you so much. Two of the most wonderful words in the whole Bible are, but God. We deserve death. But God forgave us. We were sinking, but God reached out his hand and lifted us up. Things were terrible, but God answered our prayer. He was there. He comforted us. but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy. Mercy is God's love in action. Grace is God's love in action. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Verse five says, even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace You have been saved. Grace means it's not earned. It's not deserved. There's nothing you can do to pay for it. It's just a free gift. Somebody turned it into an acronym. God's riches at Christ's expense. Not at our expense. Not something we have to pay for. Jesus paid for it. God's riches at Christ's expense. even when we were dead in our trespasses. He made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. See, God does not demand that we get our act together first. God does not demand that we clean ourselves up before he will accept us. The fact is, we can't do it. It's a good thing God doesn't require it because we don't have that ability to clean ourselves up enough to make ourselves suitable for heaven. We don't have the ability to get our act together to that point. All that God requires is that we recognize that we need help and believe that he's the one that can help us. Even while we're still stuck in the mud. Even while we're dead in our transgressions. It's not by anything we deserve. It's purely by grace that you've been saved. And then look at verse six, and this one blows my mind. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us, with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, if you look over just uh, at the verses just above chapter two, the end of chapter one, it's talking about the power that God works towards us. And it says that, This mighty strength which he exerted in Christ, I'm in chapter 1, verse 20, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And this describes where he is seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly realms. Verse 21, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title, that can be given not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. And now over here in chapter two, verse six, it says God raised us with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So if Jesus is at the right hand of God, far above all this stuff, and we're seated with him, then where are we in relation to all this stuff? we're far above it too. It's below us. It's under our feet. It's so far down, we don't have to worry about it anymore. God has lifted us up out of all of that. Somebody says, well, yeah, it sure doesn't feel that way to me right now. Theologically, they talk about the difference between the positional reality of where we are in Christ and our experiential reality, what we seem to be experiencing, what we're feeling. And I was thinking about how can I illustrate this. Anybody familiar with Tarzan? Does anybody know? I'm not talking about the Johnny Weissmuller movies, me, Tarzan, you, Jane, because that's that's not the real Tarzan. I mean the uh, Edgar Rice Burroughs books of Tarzan, or I think they made a a movie back in 1984 uh, about Tarzan. Does anybody know his other name? Lord Greystoke. Tarzan was the infant child of a British Viscount who was stranded with his wife in Africa. The parents died and the apes raised Tarzan. But Tarzan was the only child of this British noble. And he inherited the title and he inherited all the lands. And he was Lord Greystoke. Even while he was in the jungle being raised by the apes. Had no idea of it. His experience was with the apes, but his position was he was Lord Greystoke. We may be experiencing all kinds of stuff, but our position, our position in God's eyes. See, as soon as Tarzan came out of the jungle, if he'd been presented to the king of England, he would have been presented as Lord Greystoke. And the king would have treated him that way. God treats us according to our position, not according to our experience. So how does he treat us? Verse 7, in order, he raised us with Christ, seated us with him, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us. In Christ Jesus. God wants to demonstrate to all of creation, all the spirit realm, everything. He wants to demonstrate, especially in light of this celestial civil war, that his way of love and grace and mercy is more powerful than the way of pride and force and manipulation and deceit that is on the devil's side and the way god has chosen to demonstrate that is by blessing you and me by blessing the church at the end of verse of chapter 1 it said god has put jesus over everything for the church on behalf of the church for the benefit of the church that's you and me So in chapter two, verse seven, it says, he did all this so that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, or who are in Christ Jesus. Anybody remember my fair lady, Henry Higgins? wanted to prove, to demonstrate to all of his academic compatriots that his method would work in educating and civilizing somebody. And so he chose the most downtrodden person he could find out of the gutter, Eliza Doolittle. And you know the story he went on, she became... Uh, able to act like a lady and and he fell in love with her, which he did not expect at all. The difference is, God was in love with you first, before he pulled you out of the gutter. He's demonstrating that his means of love and grace and kindness works. And you know that has nothing to do with us in terms of whether we earn it or deserve it. or uh, It's not like God went looking around for the best candidates. Verse 8 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't boast. Well, God chose me. Huh? God chose me. Didn't have anything to do with you. You can't boast. I was so smart. I was so spiritual that I chose God. You couldn't have if God hadn't made it possible for you. We have nothing to boast about. It's the gift of God. It's not of yourselves. It's by grace through faith. You do have to exercise faith. But where does the faith come from? God gave it to you. Our first reading tells us that Abraham was counted as righteous, not because of the things he did. I mean, if you read back through Abraham's life, you find he did some pretty questionable things, told his wife, ah, tell, him, tell Pharaoh, you're my sister, because otherwise you're so beautiful, they may kill me and take you. So just tell him you're my sister, which meant Pharaoh took her. Rotten thing for him to do to his wife. He was not counted as righteous because of the righteous deeds that he did. The Bible very clearly says he was counted as righteous because he believed what God said. Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness. And that's how our righteousness gets counted. By faith. I may have used this illustration before, but... What does a caterpillar look like? Caterpillar, most of them, can be pretty ugly. They crawl around in the dirt. They gnaw on leaves. The birds come and pick them off. The powers of the air, maybe, from earlier. The birds come and pick them off. How does it turn into a butterfly? You can imagine a caterpillar saying, oh, I want to be a butterfly. Oh, I want to be a butterfly so much. And I see all those butterflies, they fly around all over. I want to be a butterfly, so I'm, I need to learn how to fly. And the caterpillar goes and gets some leaves. And he gets some honey from a beehive. And it sticks the leaves on its shoulders like wings. And it exercises its muscles, its shoulders, so it can... And flap the wings and it climbs up on top of a, a plant and jumps off. Like some of those old movies, the magnificent men in their flying machines, and it tumbles down. That's not how a caterpillar becomes a butterfly. It doesn't get to become a butterfly because it's learned to fly. Caterpillar becomes a butterfly by surrendering its old caterpillar nature. Ugly, crawling on the ground, gnawing on leaves, subject to the birds, picking it off. It dies to all of that, goes into a cocoon. They actually dissolve, did you know that? Caterpillars actually dissolve and turn into a liquid inside the cocoon. And God reforms them into a butterfly. By grace, God turns it into a butterfly. Beautiful, flying, sipping nectar from flowers, flying thousands of miles to Mexico to breed. Not because It learned how to fly. It flies because it allowed God to turn it into a butterfly. And the last verse for this morning, verse 10, for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are God's workmanship, God's handiwork, The New Living Translation says you are God's masterpiece. The Greek word is poema, from which we get poem. You are God's poem. Created new in Jesus. You are not what you were. Whatever you were, whatever you did in the past, when you were still following the ways of this world and dead in your transgressions and sins, none of that has any hold on you now. Because if you've put your faith in Jesus from that point on, you are born again with all the potential of a newborn baby. And the last part of that verse tells us what that potential is to do good work. So many people feel like they've wasted their lives, like their failures are not good for anything. That's not true. God created you to do good things. Somebody said, God made me. And God doesn't make junk. We are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. For us to do. The translations say that God planned. Long ago. God isn't looking around saying. Boy that David is 65 years old. He's lost a step. He's retired. What in the world can I do? What in the world can I find. For him to do now. God planned. All these things for us long ago. He doesn't force us to fit his plan. But God planned these things. In fact, God isn't trying to fit you in someplace. God designed you specifically to do the certain things that he needs done. And he has those good things for you to do at every stage of your life. So if you are still trying to get to heaven on your own efforts, if you're still trying to jump off of flowers with leaves glued to your wing, to your, to your shoulders and trying to fly, surrender your ugly old caterpillar nature. Stop crawling on the ground. Stop gnawing the leaves. Let God take over and make you beautiful. And feed you with nectar. And teach you to fly and give you strength for the long journey of life. Don't let yourself be limited by your old experience. Start living your position. Seated with Christ at the right hand of God. Believe that God wants to bless you just to show off his goodness and love. And ask him what good things he has planned for you to do right now. At whatever age and stage of life you're in. Let's say our key verse together. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. O oh God, oh God, to your Thank you for listening to this sermon, and I pray it blessed you. Again, I'm Pastor David Wentz. And for more audio sermons, books, blog posts, and other goodies, please visit www.PastorDavidWentz.com. That's spelled W-E-N-T-Z. And follow me on Facebook or LinkedIn. May God bless you as we do Christianity together. See you next time.